Well, good evening. It's good to see those who are here tonight. I guess we had a rough night last night. <laughs> we'll tell more about that in just a moment. Uh, but want to welcome those of you who are watching with us online, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, any of those platforms, be sure to heart, to like, to share, to retweet there, follow us, uh, subscribe to us. Be sure to comment in the comments there. Uh, even if you're just saying that you're here, saying something a little bit more than that, uh, that just helps with those algorithms to get the word out uh, even more to your friends uh, that were live and hopefully to get them to join also. If you do have access to the website there at hollandbaptistchurch.com, go to the info tab. That's where you can download the worship bulletins as well as the children's worship bulletins. These are in the windowsills uh, to my right and left as well as at the doors when you leave tonight if you want to get one of those. And then the children's worship bulletins are to my right. You can send that link from online to anybody that you want to. You can print them yourself and hand them out to kids uh, that you know, maybe your own kids, maybe grandkids, uh, however you want to do that. But I encourage you to take the time to do that. It's under the info link on our website. And then also under that info link is our prayer list. We especially want you to get that downloaded tonight so you'll be ready when we get to that time. Uh, if you have any prayer requests, any updates uh, to the prayer request list, uh, we want to make sure we get those tonight. So be sure to comment on Facebook. That's what we'll be watching live uh, to be able to share those comments with. Uh, you can share them on any of the others. You can send an email. You can call the church office. Uh, but if you want it to be shared tonight, do that on Facebook, and we'll do that, uh, get that shared for you tonight. I uh, also want to encourage you to go to the far right-hand side of the website. If you have access to the website, do your online giving there. Click the Give Online tab. Real easy platform to set up there to do your regular giving, your golden offering for Tennessee Missions. Uh, we do still have some of the prayer guides uh, around for praying for the golden offering for Tennessee Missions and our missionaries across the state. Uh, please grab one of those and continue praying as we continue towards our goal for that. Uh, had a great night last night for our trunk or treat. Uh, we had 375 kids, plus all the adults that came through, about 1,100 people total uh, that came through. So we just praise the Lord for the opportunity there to share the gospel, to give them uh, some information about our church, so just to reach out and touch the families uh, and the kids of our community. So uh, thank you so much for helping. Thank you for those who helped uh, in person, uh, as well as providing candy and all those things that we gave out uh, too. So thank you. Brother Mike, come and share with us. for sure. Take your hymnals and turn to 447 and let's sing Trust and Obey. Well, this is ringing down here, Ben. <clears throat> Not a grief for 
But we never can prove the delights of His love unto all on the altar we lay for the favor He shows and the joy He bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and trust and obey, then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, and we'll walk by his side in our way, what he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. And obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Thank you all. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Miss Pat. Hopefully, if you're at home there, you've had the opportunity to get your prayer list. Uh, downloaded. If not, please take the time to do that. If you have those prayer requests, we said be sure uh, to share those on Facebook. I'm on Facebook here, and so I uh, just want to welcome those who have joined us <coughs> over there on that platform. Uh, just a few that we do want to make sure to mention to you tonight. Uh, you can see all the ones who are here, <coughs> but just want to update a few. Uh, in fact, I forgot to get Amy to change this particular one. Um, so Bill Warren is on our prayer list on our H Highland Baptist Church family side there. Uh, he does not have cancer, uh, even though that says cancer out beside it. That's what they thought. Uh, he will have to have uh, another biopsy again in about six months, but uh, things look well with him. Uh, so praise the Lord for that, uh, but no cancer. Uh, Rick German, he was supposed to have his surgery yesterday. Uh, he rescheduled that for December, so keep him in your prayers as he waits for that to happen. Um, talked with Kim Dodson uh, earlier this evening, and she was sharing with us about Jeff uh, with his brain bleed. Uh, they still don't know exactly what caused it. They've not been able to find an aneurysm. They've done uh, the dye uh, tests and the scans and everything, much like what they've done with Samantha, but uh, my wife, but they've not been able to determine uh, an aneurysm there they did say that it could be up to six days that that aneurysm starts to show up uh, if it was just rupturing or or even close to rupturing there so they said with the amount of blood that he had on his brain uh, he shouldn't have been having the seizure things that he was having so they really don't know yet uh, so they are going to keep him for another week that'll be the total of 14 days that he'll be in the hospital uh, so keep him in your prayers keep Kim in your prayers uh, and all of that family remember Jack Doubt uh, he, ha he does have um, leukemia, stage 2, so remember him in your prayers. Uh, remember Christopher, he is deployed overseas for a few weeks. Hopefully that doesn't get extended for more weeks, uh, but just keep him in your prayers uh, as he is over there. Brian Tate does have a medical procedure coming up on the 6th, and so he asked for prayer for himself also. And then we found out this morning that Ken Jordan uh, passed away this morning. 
Uh, so you'll see the family of Ken Jordan uh, on the prayer list there. You'll want to remember him and his wife in prayer. Both of them had been in the hospital. He had been released and was back home, uh, and they don't know exactly what happened. They assume it was a heart attack. He was probably going to have to go back uh, to the hospital. She is still in the hospital uh, down in Franklin, or down in Franklin, in Winchester, in Franklin County. Uh, so remember her as she is still in the hospital, but remember Ken Jordan's uh, family uh, in his passing uh, early this morning. Um, and then we've added to the other side on the prayer list, on the friends and family side, Brenda Lackey that we mentioned last week uh, who has uh, pneumonia. This is a cousin of Miss Rima, so keep her uh, in your prayers. Um, and then we have our nursing home list, Mary Campbell, Peggy Eggleston, Susie Barton, Bertie Davis, Janet Carter, Floyd Prince, Sue Prince, and Beverly Daniels. Want to remember all of them in prayer. Any we need to add, any we need to update uh, tonight on any of those lists. And the only reason we didn't send, just as a word to others who may be wondering, why didn't we send a call out about Ken? We'd asked the family, and they didn't give us permission yet to do that. Uh, so that's why we haven't done that yet. Once we know any funeral arrangements, we'll let you know uh, that as we know that. We usually defer to the family and what they would prefer to have done. Anybody else? All right, I don't have any others. Um, as far as nursing home list, too, you technically could put uh, Hoyt Farrell uh, there also. He's at a, a facility over in Manchester. Uh, he's not at, um, at MacArthur Manor, but he's at another place over in Manchester. Uh, so he's on our friends and family side there. All right, I don't see any others. I don't see any on Facebook there. So let's just go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, continue to remember all the turmoil that's going on uh, in our world too, in all the, all the places. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we just want to ask, Lord, for your will to be done in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we come and, and just ask, Lord, that we know for you to hear our prayers. Uh, we must not hold on to sin in our lives. So whatever sin may be in our hearts, Lord, we pray that, uh, especially if we've not confessed it to you, Father, I pray that we would do so, uh, that you would shine the light of the truth of your word into our hearts to reveal any sin in our lives, that we might confess those things before you. Lord, we want your cleansing. We desire your cleansing for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We don't want anything to hinder our relationship with you and especially our time of prayer with you. You've told us, Lord, in your word that if we regard or hold on to iniquity, to sin in our hearts, you will not hear from heaven. So, Father, I pray that we'll come with all humility, acknowledging we're not perfect, we do sin, and we come before you with all of those sins, confessing those things specifically to you, Lord. And we just ask for the cleansing of the precious blood of Christ. We know we don't deserve anything that you have done for us, and we just ask God for your spirit to fill us to renew us, to refresh us, to revive us, to lead us, Lord, in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. We want to glorify you and honor you in all that we say and in all that we do. And so we come before you tonight, Lord. We ask uh, on behalf of each person that is on this prayer list, we ask your divine 
healing hand to be upon these individuals. We pray for you to touch them, uh, to bring that healing to them, uh, Lord, to encourage them and strengthen them through the difficulties they're going through. Uh, Father, we know that some may have to continue uh, down the journey there and the road that they're going through with these uh, difficult situations that they're facing. And so, Father, we just pray that you will give them the strength to keep pressing forward one day at a time, one moment at a time. But, Lord, we know you're the great physician, and so we uplift them to you, and we ask you to touch them to bring that healing to their bodies uh, that they so desperately need. Lord, there are so many more needs that are tied up uh, in those individuals than just the physical. Uh, many times there's the emotional needs, the spiritual needs, there's financial needs, there's all kinds of needs. Uh, there's family needs, there's marital needs. And so, Father, I just pray that, that you will reach out and meet all of the needs of these individuals, that your grace would be poured out upon them, so that you've told us that your grace is sufficient for all of our needs. And so, Father, we pray that you will show your glory and your majesty and your power as you answer the prayers on behalf of each one of these individuals. But Lord, those that are in the nursing homes, we ask your blessings upon them in a special way. Lord, help them to remember uh, that, that you have not left them nor forsaken them. And Lord, that they are also on our hearts and that we continue to remember them in our prayers also. Lord, we pray for those who have upcoming surgeries. We ask, Lord, that as there may be anxieties or worries about those things uh, in their lives, Lord, I pray that you'll send in their hearts uh, peace, Lord. I pray for those who have lost loved ones, uh, this, the family of Ken Jordan in particular, Lord. We pray that uh, you will just wrap your loving arms around that family. Uh, let them sense and feel your presence, your power, and may you give them that peace that passes all understanding in their hearts, Lord, to comfort them. Uh, during their time of loss. Be with Cindy as she's still in the hospital there, and we just pray, God, for your hand to be upon her. Lord, we thank you for the answers to prayers that you've already been doing. We thank you, uh, Lord, for uh, how you've been watching over Jeff Dodson and how you've been bringing him uh, about through this healing. And Lord, each one of these individuals, you could have taken them home at any moment, at any time. Uh, help them to know, Lord, that you're not finished with them yet until they draw that last dying breath Father, may you use them as a witness and a testimony uh, to the people around them, whether that's doctors or nurses or caregivers, whether that's family members, whether that's their spouse even. Father, I pray that you will use the situations they're going through to bring glory to your name, to bring good into their lives. And Father, we just ask for your will to be done. As we come back, Lord, to study your word tonight, uh, we pray that you will lead us through the book of Zechariah. Uh, help us, Lord, to understand your truth, to glean your truth, uh, to apply your truth to our hearts and our lives, so that we would not stray to the right or to the left, but that we would seek to follow you each and every way and each and every day. Lord, be with our Awana kids who are meeting in the building. We pray, God, for your blessings upon them. Be with those teachers. Continue to give them wisdom and discernment as they lead them. Uh, Father, we pray for our youth who are meeting here also, and we ask God for uh, your blessings upon them. Give them a hunger and a thirst as they are the next generation uh, being raised up to, to serve you and to love you. And may they impact their friends uh, for the sake of Christ. And so, Lord, we just thank you and give you the glory and the honor for all that you're doing. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Take your Bibles, if you have them there with you, uh, hopefully you do especially even if you're at home there, uh, and open them to the book of Zechariah. You may be wondering, if you've not been with us uh, in our studies, where is the book of Zechariah? Well, find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just go back three books from the book of Matthew. 
Uh, there'll be Malachi, uh, there'll be Zephaniah, and there'll be Zechariah. Uh, and so we're in the book of Zechariah. We are in chapter 3 in the book of Zechariah. We've already looked at a couple, uh, a few of the visions here uh, of Zechariah that God has given to him. The one tonight uh, that we're going to see, I've entitled this message, The Cleansing of God. And so often, uh, as we're going to find out, we listen to the devil rather than listening to the Lord and rather than listening to his word. You know, let me share this little kind of funny story here with you. There was a man who goes into a restaurant. He orders a soft drink. As soon as he receives it, he throws it in the waiter's face. The waiter's ready to fight, but the man says, oh, I'm so sorry. I have this horrible compulsion. He said, I cannot help it. He said, every time somebody hands me a drink, I throw it in their face. I feel so guilty. Please forgive me. Well, then the guy says, look, I I'm working hard to overcome this compulsion. W would you bring me another soda? Well, the waiter says, you promise not to throw it in my face? And the man says, I promise. I'm, I'm trying really hard to resist. I'll do better. So the waiter says, okay, I'll go get you another. Well, the waiter comes back with another Coke. He serves it to the man who immediately throws it in his face again. The waiter's beside himself. He said, I thought you weren't going to do that. And the guy's so embarrassed. He says, I'm sorry. I feel so guilty. I can't help it. I, I want, uh, he said, I won't even come back until I'm cured. Well, he runs out of the restaurant. 90 days later, the same guy comes back to the same place. He sits at the same table where the same waiter comes to wait on him. He says, may I take your order? The man says, yes, I'll have a soda, please. The waiter says, oh, wait just a second. He says, hold on. He said, I recognize you. Three months ago, you threw two drinks all over me. The man says, I know, and I felt so guilty. He said, but I've been in intensive therapy for the last 12 weeks. He says, I'm completely cured. Well, the waiter, he hesitates, but he says, okay, if you're cured, I'll bring you a soda. So the waiter brings another drink to this man, and the man throws it into the waiter's face. The soaked waiter, he sputters. He said, I thought you were cured. The man says, I am cured. Well, the waiter says, but you threw that drink in my face. And the man answers, yes, but I don't feel guilty about it anymore. <laughs> That's a silly little story there. But you're going to see how it applies to this passage in a very relevant way as we go verse by verse through Zechariah chapter 3 here. It's a serious truth because there's a difference between being guilty and feeling guilty. Being guilty is objective. It means we're responsible for doing something wrong or harmful or sinful. Feeling guilty is subjective. It means we feel ashamed or we feel embarrassed for something we've done. Guilt is a squishy thing, if you will, because we can feel not guilty when we really are guilty. It's possible for our conscience to become so callous, so seared uh, because of, uh, of our sin, that, that sin and evil in our own lives no longer bothers us. Uh, we, we can also feel guilty uh, when we're not guilty. A lot of people spend their lives living on a guilt trip. Uh, they misplace guilt that is not based in reality. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 10, what we're going to find that this passage talks about is about having our guilt stripped, having our guilt 
cleansed. By the grace of God, our guilt can be taken from us. It's through Jesus Christ, the Lord, who can deliver us both from being guilty and from feeling guilty. We can have the cleansing of God in our lives. And so this is Zechariah's fourth vision in a series of eight visions. We've already seen the first three. The people of Judah have come back to Jerusalem after spending many years in Babylonian captivity in the exile there. They've been in the land of Israel now for about 20 years. God's people have started rebuilding the temple. You remember they first started and just built a foundation and they left the foundation and then started working on their own houses and it stayed that way for 16 years uh, that they hadn't done anything on the house of the Lord. But now after uh, Haggai had preached to them, uh, they repented and they begun to build again. God's people started rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. But remember they faced great opposition from the others who, who lived in the area of Jerusalem and the people had stopped rebuilding the temple. Well, Zechariah, who prophesied 520 years before the time of Jesus Christ, he's been sent as God's messenger, as God's prophet, calling them to return to the Lord. And so with the guidance of an interpreting angel here, God is showing Zechariah these eight visions of which this is the fourth. In this vision... There are three major actors that we need to understand and know about uh, in addition to Zechariah the prophet. First, we're going to find out that there's Joshua the high priest. Now, it's important to notice this is not Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. That Joshua lived centuries and centuries before this time. Instead, this is Joshua who is a high priest. Uh, he's one of the 49,697 exiles who've returned to Jerusalem. As a priest... His job is to represent uh, all of God's people. In this vision, Joshua embodies the humanity that God loves and that God has called to serve him. You're going to find in verse 3, and we'll get more in detail to this, that, that Joshua is wearing uh, dirty garments. He's wearing soiled garments representing the guilt of his sin. So there's Joshua the priest. There's also the angel of the Lord, who's the second character we need to recognize in this vision. Uh, this isn't the first time that the angel of the Lord has appeared to Zechariah. We need to realize that this angel of the Lord is the second member of the Trinity. He's the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, a simple way to say that is that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus before he was born. Jesus always existed. Uh, and occasionally he shows up in the Old Testament before his birth and many times he's referred to as the angel of the Lord uh, before his birth there. And so remember the angel of the Lord here. Then you have Satan who's in this story also, who's the sworn enemy of God and his people. Now Satan's work in this vision and his work that he continues to do today is to accuse and slander God's people who are represented by Joshua and to deceive them regarding their guilt. So when it comes to our guilt, understand, and we're going to go into more detail about this, Satan will deceive you, but God will always tell you the truth. Everyone needs to hear the message of Zechariah chapter 3. Some people feel guilty who don't need to feel guilty. Their guilt has been taken away by Jesus Christ. But Satan has deceived them into a self-condemnation, a self-guilt over their past failures and their sins. Others who are guilty, uh, 
have been deceived by the devil also so that they don't feel guilt anymore at all. And so Satan has blinded their eyes uh, to, to their own sinfulness uh, in order to keep them from, from uh, bringing their guilt and their sin to Jesus to ask for forgiveness. So there are six principles I want to try to get through tonight regarding what Satan does and what God does concerning our guilt. These six principles are three pairs of principles. The first half of each pair shows how Satan deceives us in our guilt. The second half shows us how God tells us the truth. So here's the first one about Satan. Satan wants us, and the print's small because we got a lot uh, to go through tonight in these six points, and that's the only way I could get it all on the screen at once. But Satan wants us to feel hopeless when we are guilty. Satan wants us to feel hopeless when we are guilty. Look, if you will, at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So we've already gone through who all these are. When we're legitimately guilty before God, Satan uses our guilt to make us feel hopeless so that we'll stay far from God. Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, who's standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan's standing there at his right hand. So you can almost get this picture here. The word standing there is used as a technical term to talk about a priest in the presence of the Lord. Uh, who's prepared to perform his ministry. We talked a little bit about this last week because we talked about how uh, Jesus, uh, who when he passed away, when he died on the cross and then uh, when he was resurrected and he ascended to heaven, he went to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We saw in the vision we looked at last week that the priest didn't sit down because the work wasn't finished. When Jesus says on the cross it is finished, it's completely finished and then he's able to sit at the right hand of the Father on the throne in heaven. It was a symbol to remind us there of the work of the priest. The work, the priest doesn't sit until the work is finished. So when it says here standing, that's used to remind us that he is standing ready to perform his ministry. So as a minister of the tribe of Levi and a descendant of the family of Aaron, Joshua, who's the high priest, is standing ready to serve the Lord. Uh, ready to serve as a mediator, an in-between for God's people. But as he does that, notice where Satan is. Satan is standing there as well. In fact, he's at Joshua's what hand? Right hand. That's important for us to understand because that signifies where Joshua is supposed to draw his strength for service. Uh, the, when, when Jesus ascended to the Father, he sat down at the right hand and all of his power and all of his authority. Joshua here, here's uh, Joshua standing here, Satan's at, at his right hand. It's almost like you get that image of the picture of the devil on one shoulder and the angel of the Lord on the other shoulder and the devil's whispering one thing and the, the Lord's telling you something different. Well, he's at the right hand here. Satan's purpose is to accuse him. In the Hebrew, the name Satan and the verb accuse are forms of the same root word. Satan's very name means that he is an adversary. He is an opponent. His nature is always to slander, always to attack God by slandering and accusing God's people. So here Satan is 
pointing to Joshua's guilt, represented by his filthy clothes that we'll see when we get down to verse 3. And he's saying, in effect, to Joshua, there is no hope for you. You are guilty of evil. You are guilty of sin. Because of that, you cannot serve God. The truth is, according to God's word, Satan is real. He's not just a representation of fantasy. He's not a fantasy character invented to frighten people. The Bible talks about Satan as a real spiritual personality. And just as he accused Joshua, the high priest, Satan is our accuser. He opposes us. He attacks all of God's people. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, which also describes Satan's ultimate defeat, also gives us insight about his constant activity. Because here's what it says in Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, that's Satan, of our brothers, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So according to Scripture, Satan is accusing and opposing every believer every day, every night in the presence of God. And since Satan is a perfect liar, he, we, we might imagine he lies to God about our sinfulness, accusing us of things we never did do. But our enemy often does something far worse. He comes into the presence of God and he tells the truth about us. We are sinners. We are sinful. We have done, we have said we have thought things that offend God, that displease our holy God. He is true in that part. But Satan's accusations against us are always accompanied by hopelessness. He not only accuses us of having sinned, which is true, but he also tells us that we are beyond God's reach, which is a lie. Satan uses our guilt as his weapon to make us feel hopeless and to keep us from God. So in other words, you look at your sinfulness and you think, you feel there's no way God could love me because of what I've done. That's the lie that the devil wants you to believe. Here's what we find out in point number two as opposed to that. God wants us to feel sorrowful when we are guilty. God wants us to feel sorrowful when we're guilty. Not hopeless, but sorrowful. The devil wants us to feel hopeless. God wants us to feel sorrowful. So look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So when believers sin against God, God's desire is for us to feel sorrow over our guilt so that we turn from our sin. In this verse, the Lord strongly rebukes Satan for opposing Joshua. The, word, the Hebrew term ga'ar means, is the word rebuke there. It is also the word that's used to describe Jacob when he's disciplining Joseph for telling his dream 
to his brothers and boasting about it. And he gets on to him. He disciplines him. It's also the same term that God uses to, when he's rejecting the offerings of the priests and, and spreading uh, excrement, soil, poop, if you will, on their faces and their offerings in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 3. The term means to scold. It means to offer a sharp criticism. So, so God's sovereign ability to reprimand Satan in this way is a reminder to us that the Lord and Satan are by no means co-equal. In other words, Satan does not match up to God, doesn't match up to the Father, doesn't match up to Jesus, the Son. So he's not a co-equal, uh, here's Jesus and, and Satan and they're on the same playing field. No. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is above Satan himself in complete control, complete authority over Satan. And that's what it's reminding us here of his ability over Satan. As powerful as Satan's tactics uh, against God and God's people can be, he's no match for the Lord. Accordingly, when God rebukes Satan, the enemy becomes silent. The end of verse 2 reveals the foundation of the Lord's rebuke. First, the Lord had chosen Israel by his grace and by his love. God had, favor, had shown favor to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people. Secondly, the Lord specifically identifies Joshua as a burning stick snatched from the fire. The fire suggests the judgment of the Babylonian captivity. And while Joshua's people had sinned, and while the people had suffered because of that sin, God is offering hope through repentance. And so that truth corresponds to one of the major themes of this book. When you go back to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So God is saying through Joshua here, I have been faithful to bring my people out of exile, and God wasn't going to abandon them now, not even when they were covered with the filth of their sin. So think about that. Will God allow us as believers to feel bad about our sin? Absolutely. In fact, one of the signs that you've been saved is that you won't be able to continue in a life of sin and feel good about it. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 and verse 7. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So based on that fact, God's word commands us in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? So God does want his children to feel grief and sorrow uh, over our sins because grief and sorrow over our sins is the way that God brings us back to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly sorrow or godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow or worldly grief produces death. So repentance has been called a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that creates a change of direction that culminates in a change 
of your life. God loves you too much to let you stay in your sin. He loves us too much to allow us to sin and to feel good about it. But God's kind of guilt never leads us to hopelessness, never leads us to despair. He allows us to feel the weight of our sin so that we can return to him. So while Satan comes to us when we're guilty saying, there's no hope for you, you might as well, uh, you might as well be dead. God comes to us when we've sinned, and he says, repent, turn from your sin, and I'll save you. I'll make things right again. So genuine guilt is a gift from God. When we sin, the Lord wants us to feel th there's a sense of something's not right in my life. And that something is that our lives are not clean. And so his purpose in our sorrow and in our guilt is to lead us to get things right with him. Now, we can't make it right. We can't create that rightness. When we feel guilty over sin, God wants us to realize that we can't make ourselves clean. I can't make myself righteous on my own. God wants us to hand our lives over to him and say, here I am, Lord, take this sin, take this guilt, and cleanse me of it. So now we come back, as we'll see in opposition again. Satan wants us to feel innocent when we are guilty. So here's another ploy of the devil. He wants us to feel innocent when we are guilty. So look at verse 3. Now Joshua, who's the high priest representing the people, was standing before the angel, the angel of the Lord, who we know is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, clothed with filthy garments. So understand this, that the enemy of our souls has two major strategies when we're guilty of sin. Both are designed to keep us from coming to God for forgiveness. One strategy we've already seen is to make us feel hopeless so that we conclude I can never be forgiven uh, or I can never be loved by God because of what I've done and, and that's, there's nothing that can be done about my guilt. It's hopeless. There's an equally dangerous uh, way that the enemy deceives us. And this other strategy that we see in this verse, illustrated here, is to make us feel innocent so we'll continue in the sin that's destroying us. So notice Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, and how is he dressed? With filthy clothes. Now, that really doesn't paint the picture for us of the word picture of what this really would in the Hebrew language because it's almost impossible really though to describe how strongly the Hebrew language talks about the filth of Joshua's garments. These weren't simply clothes stained with just a few spots. I know when I go out to eat all the time, I'm always spilling something on my clothes. I can't help it. It's going to happen every single time. He's not talking about just some little simple spots on our clothes. Nor were these garments, uh, garments that have gone too long unlaundered. They've not been washed or clean. Uh, it's got that smell to it, the whiff of body odor on them. That's not what it means. Filthy translates perhaps the strongest expression that the Hebrew language had to talk about something that was loathsome and vile. The word used here is directly related to the Hebrew term for human excrement. 
Joshua is standing there. Standing means he's trying to serve the Lord. Yet he's absolutely contaminated. It's like he went out in the sewer and took a bath in it and it's all over his garment. The soil, the, the, that human excrement is all over his garment. And, and so the irony, though, is here, is that Joshua seems to think that he's acceptable. After all, he's dressed. He's showing uh, he, that he considers himself to be prepared to serve uh, and to minister in the temple. He's standing before the angel of the Lord, apparently believing that he's ready to do God's work and to be in the Lord's presence. He thinks, I'm fine. This is a portrait of how Satan will work when we're contaminated with sin. He's going to try to convince us that you're innocent even when there's a lot of guilt in our lives. Satan tries to convince us that things are okay with us spiritually when things aren't right. He makes us feel innocent when we are guilty, clean when we are dirty, virtuous when we are wicked, and godly when we're unholy. He hates us, and he'll do anything he can just so that we'll continue in the sin that's destroying us. That's why God's Word is so careful to warn us against this type of self-deception. How do we know that? Go over to the New Testament and look in John's letter in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. And it says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You could be standing there thinking everything's all fine with you. You can think there's no sin in your life, but he says you're deceiving yourself. Verse 10 goes on to say, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So when the truth of the Word of God is not in us, we're easy prey for Satan's deceptive work regarding our sin. So b before we encounter the objective standard of God's Word, you can do all kinds of things and, and yet be deceived about your guilt. You can be deceived into thinking, well, the times have changed and, and we don't have any need to be concerned about sexual sins. We can be fooled in, into supposing that, that, that we had a good reason uh, to lie. Uh, we, can, we can be fooled into thinking we should feel no guilt over being dishonest. Uh, we, we can be tricked into believing, well, everybody around us is doing it. Everybody around us is cheating, so it's only fair for me to cheat as well. And, and then when we come to the Scriptures, though, God's Word speaks to us and says that God is truth and therefore He wants us to be truthful that God is pure, and because we are His children, we profess it with our lips, do we believe it in our hearts? We're to live pure before Him. When we as believers fail to hold, when we fail to hold our lives up to the standard of God's Word, not looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people. You can make yourself look rosy and fine and all good and dandy when you compare yourself to other people. But when you compare yourself to the standard of God's word, that's where our foundation is to be. But when we fail to hold up to God's word and we don't allow scripture to determine whether our lives are pure and undefiled, you begin to open yourself up to Satan's deception because he wants us to feel innocent when we're guilty so that we'll just keep on sinning keep on doing the same thing we've always done. So come to verse 4 and verse 5. And we find 
God wants us to feel guilty when we are guilty. So verse 4 says, here's the angel. This is the Lord speaking. This is Jesus pre-incarnate speaking. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin, is what that word means, away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure clothing. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So what do we get from those two verses? God wants us to feel guilty when we're actually guilty because only then will we bring our guilt before him to be forgiven. Apart from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, your likelihood is to just keep on deceiving yourself, to keep on continuing in sin, as we said, even as our sin destroys us. And so these verses are describing the cleansing of Joshua the priest, symbolizing the forgiveness and the restoration of the people of Israel. Verse 4 says that the angel of the Lord spoke, commanding those who were standing by the high priest, evidently other attending angels who were there, to remove Joshua's filthy garments. The word spoke is an instructive word there in that the Hebrew term used here often means to answer. It means to respond. So the word is telling us, that indicates a response here to a request, a response to a question, even though that request may not be explicitly spoken here. So in this case, Joshua has come before the Lord here, made the request of the Lord, God, take this filth off of me, take away my guilt. Uh, that's implied in the answer that comes from the Lord. And so God does what Joshua could never do for himself. He answers according, ordering that the contaminated clothes be removed. After the garments uh, of Joshua's guilt are removed, the Lord does something even more beautiful. He tells Joshua, see, I have removed your guilt from you. The Lord's words are a reminder to us that when we bring our guilt to God, He's not only gracious enough to cleanse us, but also to show us. Because notice what He tells Joshua, see. He says, see, look. He's wanting us to see and, and to look also. And He tells us, you have been cleansed. That's what He's telling Joshua. He says, I've removed your guilt from you. And so what we see in these verses here is that there's no more wandering. There's no more doubt, to be no more doubt in our minds about where we stand with God. Even more, the Lord promises Joshua, I will clothe you. Uh, he says, I will clothe you with pure vestments or splendid robes. Uh, the word translated there uh, for, for splendid uh, or pure uh, there is the same word used in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 22. Uh, Joshua's new garments represent purity, represent holiness. And they also signify his restoration, his readiness uh, to resume his ministry as a priest. So when you come to verse 5, uh, Zechariah himself interjects. He's desiring to see Joshua's rest restoration made complete. And so the turban... Uh, that it's spoken of there uh, ador is adorned with a golden gold medallion. Uh, 
uh, that's worn by the priest. And you can read about that in Exodus 28, verse 36 to verse 38, uh, is where it speaks about the golden medallion on the turban. It indicates that the medallion was engraved in that passage in Exodus 28. It's engraved with these words, holy to the Lord. So the high priest wearing that, that emblem on the turban there saying holy to the Lord represents that he is holy to the Lord. So the end result is a picture of complete cleansing. Joshua, who represents all of God's people, had been filthy, had been contaminated with sin. Now he's robed in this festive uh, attire, crowned with God's holiness, ready to meet the Lord, ready to serve uh, in his name. Joshua's cleansing portrays vividly the picture of salvation and restoration that God brings to us as sinners when we confess our sin and we receive his forgiveness. When we as sinners recognize I am guilty before God of my sin and I acknowledge that I've departed from him, I've sinned against God and I repent and I turn away from it, God uses our real guilt as a tool to bring his grace to us. God wants us to feel guilty when we are guilty so that we will turn from our guilt and be cleansed. Not as the devil wants to bring hopelessness into your life. So if you're thinking those thoughts of hopelessness, that's not from God. That's what we're seeing here from the scripture. That's not from God, that's from the devil. There is hope for you because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And so until we know that we've sinned and we come before God and say, God, I have sinned and I need you to cleanse me, we'll never receive the forgiveness that we need. The Bible promises in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness, all of my filthy rags. God's forgiveness and God's grace comes when we agree with God that we have sinned, that we are guilty, and then when we seek his cleansing. But here's what we know. We live in a generation of people today who never want to feel guilty about anything, even great sin. We need to feel guilty when we're guilty so that we can bring that guilt before God and he can take away our guilt. Guilt should move us to confess our sins. We ought to confess our sins the same way we commit our sins. Sometimes we pray, Lord, forgive me of my many sins. I'd encourage you to be more specific. When we commit our sins, we don't commit our sins as a lump sum. So why should we confess it as a lump sum? Instead, just like we commit our sins one at a time, we ought to confess our sin one at a time. So immediately, as a believer, you ought to feel that guilt in your heart and in your life that I cannot stay in this situation that I'm in. I feel the guilt of my sin, and I cannot stay here. I've got to get rid of it. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. The person who is not filled with the presence of Christ in their life, they don't care. They just keep right on doing it and keep right on doing it. But if you have the Spirit of God living within your heart, you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you are saved, you cannot stay there. And so we ought to pray, Lord, I lied. 
forgive me. Lord, I mistreated so-and-so, forgive me. Lord, I had an attitude that was hateful, an attitude that was unkind to this person, forgive me. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, I ask you to forgive me. And as we confess individually those sins, the Bible promises that God is faithful and just to cleanse us from that guilt. Now, so far in this text, Zechariah has shown us how God counters the work of Satan before we're cleansed of our guilt. The last two principles show us how Satan deceives us and how God tells us the truth after we've been forgiven. So that's what verse 6 and verse 7 is about. Satan wants us to feel guilty even when you've already been forgiven. He wants you to feel guilty when we're forgiven. After God has forgiven believers, Satan's desire is to make us to continue to feel guilty, to keep us and to debilitate us spiritually, to keep us from serving the Lord. So look at verse 6 and verse 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So after God has forgiven a believer, Satan's standing there to make us feel guilty, keep us perpetually uh, distanced from God, debilitate us spiritually, keep us from serving the Lord. Now once Joshua has been cleansed of his sin, here's the Lord who comes along to speak this strong word of assurance to him. The Hebrew word translated there, uh, assured or, or charged, uh, is extremely instructive to us regarding the Lord's intentions. It means to bear witness. It means to give testimony. In this instance, the Lord is countering any lingering accusations of Satan regarding Joshua's guilt by providing a solemn declaration that this high priest wasn't just clean, he's ready for renewed ministry. In verse 7 there, the Lord describes the nature of Joshua's service by representing an if-then conditional promise with two conditions three results the first condition involves obedience if you walk in my ways God says so God's calling Joshua to pursue that life of personal righteousness now that he's been forgiven so keep on living for the Lord now that you confess those sins to him so if you walk in my ways if you do this keep my instructions if you keep my instructions he says so the Lord's instructions speak of Joshua's duties as a priest to fulfill the requirements of his office. So in response to Joshua meeting those two conditions, the Lord promises three things. He says, I promise you leadership among God's people. God promised that Joshua would rule my house. God's house refers here to his people. It's the same image used in Numbers 12, 7, where God describes Moses as being faithful in all my household. Joshua's obedience here would result in him being a leader, being a judge over the people of God. Another thing that we see that the Lord says as a result is you'll have authority over the temple. So the Lord assures Joshua, you're going to take care of my courts. The Lord was not only promising uh, that the temple, which was uh, presently in ruins, uh, that it would surely be rebuilt, but he's also saying that, Joshua, you're going to have the honor 
of serving there. So that's an assuring promise there. Uh, that phrase, take care of, carries the idea uh, of both watching over something to protect it, but also taking charge of something. And then he says, here's another benefit of your obeying me. Here's another benefit of the if, if you do the if, is access to God. That's the Lord's final promise to Joshua, that you'll be granted access among those who are standing here. That word translated access, access means a passageway. It means a stretch of road. Joshua was promised the rite of passage into the very presence of God, even amongst the angelic beings. Looking at that if-then pattern of those promises, it's important for us to see Joshua's cleansing had been given unconditionally when he repented. All Joshua had to do to be clean was to turn to the Lord and receive the gift of forgiveness however Joshua's youth usefulness his service to the Lord his his usefulness to the Lord was conditional the Lord said in effect Joshua now that you're cleansed obey me be faithful to me and I will use you for my glory and bless your life sometimes we as Christians can be so obsessed by the memory of some sin that we committed years ago, it never leaves us, it cripples us in the work of God, in our devotional life, in our relationship with others. Here's what I want you to know. God has great plans for you once you've been cleansed. But Satan wants us to make us feel like we, what we once were. He brings up our past over and over he brings up our failures. He brings up our weaknesses. He brings people into our path to discourage us. He, and he also stirs up our own self-doubts so that we negate ourselves. And here's what you need to realize. Once you're forgiven, Satan will often use that misplaced guilt over sin that God has already forgiven to keep you from being used by God. That's why forgiven people need to be reminded of who they have become through Jesus Christ. It's not because of your righteousness that you were saved. It's because of the righteousness of Christ that was imparted to you. We're no longer guilty. We are forgiven. And even the most shameful, shameful things from your past have been cleansed by him and redeemed as a testimony to his glory in our lives that's going to bring us to our final principle that we'll come back to next week let's go to the lord in prayer heavenly father what a powerful encouraging word for us that so many christians need to hear lord that when we are forgiven by the precious blood of jesus christ when we trust in that free gift of salvation that he offers to us we acknowledge our sin we acknowledge our guilt we acknowledge that we are sinners. We have fallen short of your glory. Father, when we come to that place and we repent of our sin, we turn away from it and we turn to follow you. And we, we seek the salvation of Christ in our hearts and our lives. We ask Christ to come into our lives and to save us and to help us to live for you all the days of our lives. Lord, help us to know that we have been forgiven. Everything is under the blood. Now, does that mean we're perfect? We understand that, God, we're not. 
there will be times where we will still sin. Father, until we get to heaven, we know we won't be perfect until there. But Father, I pray that we would not use that as an excuse to continue in our sin. To not use that as an excuse for, for, for not dealing with the sin and the guilt in our lives. So we come before you tonight and we confess all of those things to you, whatever it may be. Lord, I pray that tonight as we go home, as we were reminded of your word even throughout this week, as we commit sins, Lord, burden us and help us to come to the place of repentance to deal with that sin right then. And Father, I pray that when we're forgiven of that sin, we'll realize that no matter how much Satan tries to bring that up against us, it's under the blood. No matter how much he tries to accuse us, it's under the blood. Father, I pray that as we come and confess sins before you, as we deal with those sins and repent and turn back to you, Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand in our heart of hearts that we have been forgiven and that you are ready to use us to not let our past sins that have been forgiven keep us from your, your faithful work. So bless us, Lord. Bless us as we go forward, and may your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us there online. We're glad to have you with us tonight. Uh, come back and join us Sunday morning, 9.15 for Sunday school, 10.30 for worship. Uh, if you can't be here in person, which we'd encourage you to be here uh, if you can, uh, join us there online on any one of those platforms. If you need that phone live streaming number, uh, please let us know. Does somebody have Facebook still up? Nobody does. Hopefully there's no prayer requests there. If there are, we'll make sure to get those on the prayer list. But thank you for joining us. We'll see you this coming Sunday.